And welcome to episode 65 of On The Ledge podcast. This week we're looking at the foul-tastic world of moth orchids. Cakeys, epiphytes, velamen, nodes, bark. We're going to get into all of the in-depth stuff that you need to know to make sure your moth orchids thrive. love them or hate them well i've always been a little bit of an agnostic when it comes to phalaenopsis i don't hate them but i haven't been as passionate about them as i have about other plants but i can see the attraction they are after all a pretty easy house plant to grow if you know a few simple tips which is where this episode of the podcast comes in and they do offer excellent value for money flowering for absolutely months And you also have to admire their sheer gumption. These plants have managed to worm their way into so many of our homes. Even the person who feels they have the blackest thumb will often have a moth orchid somewhere on the windowsill. I wonder whether some of my feelings about moth orchids have been influenced by reading The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. In this book, he has a scene in an orchid greenhouse where he describes the orchids as having nasty, meaty petals that look like human flesh and stalks like the newly washed fingers of dead men. (laughs) I think that's a great description. I, I, in, to me, that just makes them even more cool. Um, I also love Anna Pavor, the English garden writer's description of the flowers of the Phalaenopsis as being fat-cheeked, doll-like faces. Yeah, I can see that. I really can. They come in a vast array of different colours, patterns and even sizes. And yes, we have now got scented Phalaenopsis. More on that a bit later. So they're ubiquitous, they're easy, and they're also fascinating. These plants have got a few tricks up their sleeve to survive as epiphytes, that's tree dwellers in their homelands in tropical Asia, particularly the Philippines. And there's more to those chunky silver roots than you might think. But some of us do get terribly confused about how to water them. Are ice cubes involved? We'll find out. What's the best place to put them to get the right kind of light? And, of course, how to get them to bloom again. We'll be covering all of that in this episode and more. I've got Suzanne Masters, who's an orchid expert, to answer some of your questions. And I've also got Raffaele Delallo back. He appeared last in our Fern episode to talk about his new Phalaenopsis orchid ebook and answer some of those vital questions for me. There's also something to check out on my website this week. If you head over to janeperone.com and click on the blog link or just follow the link from my show notes, you'll find a wonderful piece by Pumpkin Beth, who is a UK-based orchid enthusiast. And she's written me a lovely blog post about her collection. She's got the National Collection of Miniature Phalaenopsis. And in this post, she introduces her collection and offers up some tips on Phalaenopsis care and some highlights from the plants from her collection, including the wonderful Phalaenopsis honghenensis, which has a flower scent that's supposed to smell a bit like smoky bacon. (laughs) Imagine that. So please do go and check out that post from Pumpkin Beth. And thank you so much to her for contributing to the blog. She was a bit too shy to come on the podcast, which I can understand. But please, please do go and read her post and check out her website, which you'll find at pumpkinbeth.com. Well, let's get down to the nitty gritty of looking after our orchids. And the first thing that we should consider is watering. Yes, we've just had the sound effect, so you knew what was coming next. The first and most important thing to say here is whatever you've read on the internet, ice cubes and phalaenopsis do not mix. Raffaele Delallo of Ohio Tropics agrees. 
You know, I tell people, you know, unless you see a monkey with a popsicle walking around, you know, don't use ice to water your orchids. <laughs> yeah, this is true. If you water your orchids by dropping a couple of ice cubes into the pot once a week, as is recommended in some places, what happens is this. The ice melts and often water is left in the crown of the plant and this will cause rot and problems like that. Also, it ch chills the plant. The plant is not used to being in any kind of icy conditions, as Raphael has pointed out. So really, it's not the ideal way to water. But what is? Well, let's take a pause now. I'm going to go and grab some orchids and show you how I water them. OK, come on, Wolfie, you ready to go? Let's go into the house. See you in a minute. Here we are, Wolfie is uh, with me and he's looking on impassively as I prepare to water my orchids. I've got a little dish with uh, one, two, three, four, five Phalaenopsis orchids in here. Only one of them is flowering right now. It's a lovely scented uh, orchid from Double H Nurseries, which they kindly gave me when I visited earlier this year. And they are all stuffed inside this well, it's what, what was supposed to be a salad bowl, but I use it for plants. And there's five little see-through pots in here. And at the bottom of the salad bowl, come plant pot, I have a layer of hydraulica. Now this is expanded clay pebbles and it's useful for all kinds of things in indoor gardening. It's incredibly light. There we go, I've got a handful here. It doesn't weigh hardly anything, uh, but it's made of clay and it's it's incredibly absorbent of water. It's really useful if you want to add a mulch to the top of plants or you can use it as a pebble tray. And it's in the bottom of this container, increasing the humidity around these Phalaenopsis orchids. So I'm gonna leave these orchids in their pot, in their big pot uh, and their small pot. And what I'm gonna do, just taking one out and put a solid back in again. Here it goes. Okay, so they're all slotted back in here. All I'm going to do is just fill the whole thing with water from my tap. Till the plants probably about halfway up the side of the pot. The water's coming up. There we go. So the whole thing is filled with water now. And I'm just going to leave it there now for about half an hour. This means that the bark is able to absorb the moisture. And as long as I remember to tip away that excess water at the end, then the orchids will get a good soaking without getting anything that might cause rot happening. While I'm looking at this, I can also check the health of the roots. They should be a nice silvery green color not too silvery uh, if they start looking really dried out then that means they're too dry and any roots that have got a bit dried up and dead can be chopped off with a pair of clean scissors you can just put these under uh, a naked flame lighter or whatever just to sterilize the scissors before you get started so these are going to sit here for half an hour now there is another way of watering that is perfectly good also and is good if you're a forgetful person who will forget to empty the water out. And I'm just going to head over to get another orchid to explain how this is done. Hang on. Got another orchid here that's in a little individual cash pot with a clear pot inside it. And this one I'm going to use the what I call the under the tap method. So this one is even easier. It's best if you manage to do this once a week. The soap method is great if you've forgotten to water your orchids for absolutely ages and you've suddenly remembered them. But provided you're watering them once a week, the tap method is very, very successful. Hang on, let me move the other orchids out of the way of the tap. And I'm literally going to turn the tap on and start looking at the clock. And I'm going to give this about 30 to 60 seconds running water through. Thank you. 
And during this time, I'm making sure that the crown of the plant doesn't have water hanging about in it, but the compost, the bark, is getting thoroughly soaked always round, all round the side. And you can see, the benefit of using the plastic pot is you can really clearly see that the water is going through there. Okay, that's probably about long enough for this one. So I'm turning off the tap, making sure that the water has drained away and it goes back in its cash pot. And that's the job done. If I've got a few seconds to spare, I'm going to get a damp cloth and just give these leaves a wipe where they're rather dusty. And that will make sure that they are getting maximum access to air through their stomata, which are their breeding holes and will make my orchid look look pretty too. It's a good time to check for pests and any other damage and I can see on this plant that it's doing fine. It's finished flowering for the moment and it's got a new root emerging which it looks like a little pointy green thing coming out of the base of the root. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between roots and flower stems but once you get your eye in you get used to the different appearance of those two things. And if you want to see what an emerging root and an emerging flower shoot look like, I'll post some pictures on my show notes for you. So I hope that was clear. The two different methods you can use for watering your orchids, either that tap technique if you're a pretty regular waterer, or if they need a good soak because they've become dried up, you can use the soaking technique by putting water in the cash pot or sticking them in the sink for a while. And yes, you can use tap water. It's fine for most orchids. The mineral salts that are in tap water don't tend to cling on to the bark and don't tend to cause a problem. But if you do happen to have a source of rainwater, that really is always the gold standard for watering houseplants. So if you've got it, use it. Oh, and just a note on that tap water. When you're running the tap, if you make sure that there's a bit of hot water going in there so that the resulting water is kind of tepid as opposed to freezing cold, that will avoid your orchids getting a horrible shock. So just test the water before you start putting it onto the orchid. Now let's talk about the all-important issue of light and back to Raffaele to explain how he positions his orchids. You know, these are plants that really need to be, I mean, right in front of a window. Um, I, I do, if you read my book, I what I do with my moth orchids is I will put them on display when they're in bloom. Um, so, and, you know, enjoy them when they're in bloom. Put them, put them on display somewhere, even if it's where you wouldn't necessarily grow them. But after they're done, I always return them in, in front of a window. If they don't have the proper light, they're, they're just not going to rebloom for you. So just by fixing the light, oftentimes we'll, we'll get them to rebloom. So think maximum light without direct sunlight. So if you've got a south-facing window, but it's got quite a thick neck curtain up at it, that might be fine for your moth orchid. If you've got an east or west-facing windowsill, that should also be fine. But in the summer months, you may find it necessary to move that orchid a little bit away from any direct sunlight that's coming in through a window. I've got a north-facing kitchen, but there's a skylight above, which makes it ideal for orchids. But I do find if I move the plants really close to that skylight in the middle of summer, they do get burnt. So it's worth experimenting. And as Daryl Cheng pointed out in last week's episode, a light meter is a good investment as a way to figure out how much light your plants are actually getting. You'll know if your plant's been scorched because it'll end up with straw-like patches on it, which is an indication that it's been touched by the sun in rather too intense a way. What can you do if that happens? Well, not a lot, to be honest. If the leaf goes completely straw-like, then you can remove it. But otherwise, you'll just have to wait as that leaf grows and new leaves come to replace it. Eventually, it will fall off as the plant develops. And as Raffaele explains here, the leaves are generally a really good indicator of overall orchid health. So if you look at the if you look at the leaves uh, on moth orchids, it'll give you a good indication if you're providing enough light. Well, first of all, if your if your plant is blooming, that means it's getting enough light, which is good. Um, but you can also look at the leaves at, at the other times of year. So if you have a Phalaenopsis that where the leaves are very 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 dark green, it probably means that it's not getting enough light. And, and really, you know, that, that goes for any plant. If, if you have a plant that's in a darker area, it's basically forced to, to 
to create more chlorophyll in order to survive, so, so therefore it becomes a darker green color. What you want to aim for in a moth orchid is almost, you know, not too dark of a green, but and not quite a lime green, but somewhere in between. If you are providing your moth orchid with too much sunlight, what you'll find is that the leaves will start to turn, the edges of the leaves will, will start to turn a little bit reddish. And so then you'll know that your plant is at the edge of, of the sun tolerance of your plant. So that's light and watering catered for, but what happens when those months of blooms finally come to an end? How do we get the orchid to repeat the show? Over to Raffaele to explain. You have a few different options that, that you could do. So obviously, you know, the flowers will, will dry up and shrivel up and fall off, and then you're left with a, a tall, lanky uh, flower spike. So some people just simply leave the flower spike, and sometimes you'll see, you know, more buds starting to grow at the tip. But I, I never do that. I, I don't recommend that because you'll just end up with, you know, smaller and smaller flowers and it'll just kind of look a little bizarre. <laughs> so I do uh, one of two, two other options. So one thing that you can do is you can take a look at where the bottom flower was on, on the flower spike and then go down the, go down the flower spike and find the the node on um, on the flower spike below where the where, where the last flower was, and you'll want to make a cut just above that node. So you'll see almost like a little knob on on the flower spike with the little sheath covering it. Um, that's the node. So you'll want to cut just a little bit above, not too close, but a little bit above it. And sometimes it'll branch off with a, a brand new flower spike off of that node. And sometimes you'll even start to see the the branching occur right away, um, or sometimes you'll have to wait. So you'll just have to keep an eye on it. And you know it's not going to happen all the time. And you know sometimes I do that and nothing happens. So I, I'll wait a few weeks or a month or two, and I get frustrated and nothing happens. And at that point, I just cut the whole flower stalk off. So it won't always work, but it it works it works you know quite a few quite a few number of times, or if you know if it's had a really spectacular show of flowers like you said they'll they could last a good uh, i mean in my experience the flowers can last a good 3 to 5 months if it's had a good spectacular show sometimes i'll just simply cut the whole flower stalk off and and what this does is it it'll allow your plant to regain its energy and then put its energy into growing new leaves so that it can it can store energy and grow um, so that it could provide you with a, another show the following year. More about how to rebloom your orchid coming up in our bumper Q&A shortly. But let's look now at the medium, the potting medium for your orchid. If you've ever tried repotting an orchid, you'll know this ain't the same stuff as you put most house plants in. It looks more like something you might find on the ground at a play park than your regular house plant compost. And this really is key to success with your orchids because these tree dwellers don't like regular house plant compost. You'll find various orchid composts available in the garden centre. Most of them are made up of pieces of bark chip of different dimensions. But the key with orchid compost is to make sure that it's very, very open and allows water to flow through really, really freely in a way that regular houseplant compost just wouldn't. This is because the roots of the plant photosynthesise and breathe and they need loads of air around them because of their tree-dwelling nature. You can make up your own orchid compost mix and a book that I'd recommend you take a look at, Growing Windowsill Orchids by Philip Seaton, full details in my show notes, includes some recipes for doing this. The basic ingredient mix here suggested is one part sphagnum moss, one part perlite, one part charcoal to three parts bark. But for most of us buying our phalaenopsis at the supermarket or from a garden centre, it may be a while before we start wondering whether our plant actually needs repotting at all. Another aspect of their low maintenance nature is that they don't need a frequent change of pot. I would have to say that you, you, you know, other plants are a little bit more forgiving when it comes to, to, to repotting in general. When it comes to moth orchids, depending on 
what they're growing in. So I, I think you can get away from for moth orchids growing in sphagnum moss, which I, I don't do. It, it's You can. It's just I, I don't prefer it. Um, you, you might be able to get away with repotting a little less frequently. But for, for the majority of moth orchids that are growing in a bark mix, um, one of the indications that you need to repot are, you know, that you have roots busting out all over the place and, you know, even coming out of the drainage holes. And, you know, one, one, of, the, one of the reasons I like growing the Phalaenopsis in clear plastic pots is you can visually see. And, you know, you can, you can see if, if you have a ton of roots in your pot and you have roots coming out all over the place that it's time to repot. But as far as a rule of thumb, I would recommend for people, really, you should be repotting your orchid, I would say, anywhere in the range of every one to three years. Probably every other year is, is pretty safe. And the, the danger in not repotting is, is that eventually the bark mix is going to break down. Um, so depending on, you know, and, and obviously the rate at which it break down, breaks down depends on a lot of different factors. But, you know, once it breaks down, then, you know, like you mentioned, they're epiphytes. You're going to end up you're going to end up suffocating the roots if, if it breaks down into, um, you know, a fine a fine texture. So epiphytes need a lot of air to their roots. And, you know, if, if your mixture potting mixture is breaking down a lot, then you're going to end up rotting out the roots and so that's the main danger in not repotting. So I, I would say, you know, take a look at your roots. Take a look if, if your bark mix is breaking down. And probably every other year is probably a safe bet in, in repotting your moth orchid. But you definitely don't want to go, you know, more than much more than three years before repotting your, your moth orchid because the mixture is going to break down and you're going to start to rot out your roots. Right, we've got two more things to talk about before we go to our Q&A. Number one, humidity, and number two, feeding. Humidity, I do not miss my orchids. I've never seen it as massively necessary. As you heard earlier, I do have some of them sitting on, on damp, expanded pebbles, which seems to work nicely to increase humidity. But they're not plants like very, very fine-leaved calatheas and things which desperately need hugely high humidity. They will cope in the average home. So don't worry too much about fussing around with misters and the like, unless you get a kick out of that kind of thing, of course. And on to feeding. And now, as epiphytes living up in the tree canopy... Phalaenopsis do not in nature use a heck of a lot of nutrients. So when you're feeding, you need to bear this in mind. If you want to go down the easy route, then just use a normal houseplant fertilizer, roughly half to a quarter of the strength you would normally use throughout the growing season. If you want to get a bit more technical, you can buy specific orchid feeds. All the major houseplant feed companies make these and they all work pretty well. And some growers recommend a way to stimulate flowering is to feed with a phosphorus high fertiliser such as a tomato fertiliser in the run up to flowering. I haven't given that a try but that's something I might be trying about now in September and October. Two other issues that I haven't addressed anywhere else in this podcast are this clear plastic pots and staking. On the staking issue, 99 times out of 100, when you buy a Phalaenopsis, it comes already staked with those cute little clips. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with leaving it like that if you prefer that particular look. And it's just to make the orchids look neat and also to save space when transporting. You don't have to keep those stakes on if you prefer the more floppy natural look once you get them home. But equally, it's fine to leave them on if you choose to do so. And in fact, the wonderful thing about orchid stems is they're so flexible and strong that when your plant reblooms, if you do fancy training it into a hoop or a cascade or another shape, that's entirely possible to do. So do hang on to those clips and hoops and stakes if you fancy doing a bit of phalaenopsis training. And on the clear pots, well, yes, traditionally orchids are sold in clear pots. And this is because the roots covered with that velamen, which is the outer layer of the root, which actually photosynthesizes. 
it's taking in light and turning that into energy. So traditionally, clear pots were used. The benefit of using a clear pot when you're growing at home is that you can see exactly what's going on when you're watering. You can see whether the bark's getting soaked or not and check the health of the roots. But there's no hard and fast rule that says you can't put your orchid in an opaque pot. That will work just as quite as well. You might just need to take the plant out of its pot more regularly to check it's doing okay. You might argue, well, yes, but doesn't the light need to get through to those roots for photosynthesis? Well, yes, in an ideal world, but your plant will probably thrive without having that extra little bit of light source. So don't panic. These are tough old plants. Yonks ago, I asked you for your orchid questions. Thank you to those of you who contributed. And Suzanne Masters was on hand to answer some of your tricky Phalaenopsis questions. I'm Suzanne Masters and I'm an ethnobotanist and I work on research on wild harvesting of edible orchids and ingredient selection for gin and bar ingredients and other distilled things. But orchids are really a group of plants that I spend a lot of time with. So I've got some questions for you to answer. The first one comes from Heidi Lyons. And she says, I have a collection of about a dozen Phalaenopsis orchids, which I bought in April 2017. They are at an east facing picture window and get morning sun and bright light the rest of the day. I feed them with 786 fertilizer weekly and they have roots growing like crazy, but have not rebloomed for me. Any suggestions or do I just need to be patient? I think this might be the most common orchid question. Right. Reblooming. Reblooming. So. The, the traditional advice is to put them on an east or west facing window. Now, that works very well if you've got a nice house, say, in a suburban area where you have the light comes from all the right angles as it should do. But a lot of people, depending on what houses are next to you or how high up you are or if you're in an apartment down low in an apartment block, the, the, the concept of east or west facing window possibly doesn't mean quite what it did you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And the thing about Phalaenopsis is that they like bright light, but not direct sun showering. So depending on, you know, Heidi's east facing window might not actually have bright light without direct sunshine. So first she should, she should look at that. Uh, and she might end up moving them to a different window because I think she has been very patient and Given that sometimes when they're really happy, they'll flower almost continuously. If you get them in the right spot, they'll always have a flower spike just emerging or flowers on the go. So I think I think she's done patience. So she can check the light situation and she can also be a little bit assertive and give them the message, you guys have got to do some flower action or you're getting the chop. And the, the way you do that is for four weeks – make them put them in a place where they're a little cooler so about five degrees cooler for four weeks and then bring them back into their nice stable temperature slightly warmer spot and that might trigger the development of some flower spikes okay so when you say cooler do you mean like sort of 10 to 15 degrees centigrade rather than 20 well it depends a little bit on the the ambient temperature in her in her home Usually phalaenopsis, they want a minimum of 16 degrees and a maximum of 30 degrees, which isn't really, well, actually we're having quite a hot summer, but (laughs) in most homes it's not really, you're not really going to fry them with hot temperatures because they like the kinds of temperatures that people's bodies like without too many low layers of warm clothes. So usually, you know, in a house you're about, 20 degrees more or less and it's fairly stable so if she can find possibly it depends if she's got a cooler you know a thick walled garage that's got a bit of a patch where bright light comes in that might give a nice temperature drop I mean the thing is is it's all very well to being advised I'll expose them to about five degrees cooler for four weeks but it's hard finding the spot to do that and again, that's the thing where if you have a greenhouse, it's quite easy to, to move them from a cosy greenhouse to a cool, 
part of a kitchen or bathroom. Yeah, I, I can. T- I, I mean, I guess the other thing is, is it might just be a case of depending on what kind of house she has. But in my house, certainly, um, my some of my phalaenopsis are in uh, a room which is quite cold in the winter. So it might just be a case of the winter possibly supplying that colder, slightly colder time rather than um anything else although i guess that hasn't worked last winter but it depends how how well insulated your house is i suppose i know i know my sort of playroom which has got a glass roof does get quite chilly at night in the winter you know down to like um, 16 or something so i suppose that supplies that kind of temperature but well it sounds like it's not the end of the world if they're if they've got roots like growing like crazy then it's all the, the foundations are there right but it's just those flowers need to be stimulated they might they might need to be putting if they're too big for their pots and they've got loads of roots and they're, they're getting into quite large plants they might actually benefit from being taken out of the pot having a bit of a tidy up of the roots so you you cut out the shriveled ones or the wizened ones or the ones that are a bit hollow and manky and you just leave the firm white ones and some people advise trimming the roots back to about 12 centimeters and then you repot them and the the aerial roots shouldn't be pushed under the compost you leave you leave the aerial roots in the air but if they are if they are sort of growing quite big and with lots of roots it might be repotting might give them a little nudge Okay, well that's great. That's fantastic, and we'll 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 hopefully hear from Heidi that she's had some lovely blooms before long. The next question comes from Amy Gillingham, who wants to know how to properly remove pups to replant. Uh, I guess these are also known as cakeys, aren't they? Right. And I do wonder about this. Should I be cutting them off? Should I be twisting them off? Is there a method? I think unless you've got sort of excellent dexterity with your fingers and wrists to just snap them off, it's just easier to carefully cut them off with a sharp blade. But one that's clean, um, I think cutting them off is going to be the easiest way. And then just pop them up and treat them like a little plant. But as with all little plants, you you might observe them more closely and and be very careful about where you sight them so that they're in a, a a spot that they really like to give them the best chance of grow- growing into full-size plants. So is the key to make sure that you don't kind of, that you find the join between the the, the adult plant and the keiki in terms of, is is it really obvious where, where, where you should be cutting? Yes, it should. I mean, you should be able to see because it's really, the keiki is really a mini plantlet. So you can, you can see, here I've got this little plant with some little nascent roots and little leaves coming out and the join you you know they'd be coming off the flowering stem usually of the the parent plant so you're you're less worried about taking a notch out of the flowering stalk than you are accidentally cutting something critical on the keiki so if you if you if you're not too sure err on the side of chopping a bit more off the flower stalk and you might lose a flower spike but then you get the, the an extra plant. That's excellent advice. Next up, Bridget uh, wanted to ask about scale insect. She said, is it worth persevering and spraying and removing by hand or admit defeat and consign plants to the compost bin? I've never had an orchid with scale, but uh, any experience with this one? Yeah, I mean, scale insect seems an unusual thing on the Phalaenopsis, I have to say. Uh, but okay, that's what she's got. So, firstly, she'd need to check: is it just the Phalaenopsis, or is it other plants? Because if you if you clearing them off the Phalaenopsis, really, in some ways, the Phalaenopsis because they have a limited number of leaves, it's quite easy to remove the scale insects from there. But then, if they're getting reinfected by another plant nearby you're just going to be continuously cleaning that phalaenopsis off. It depends. If she, So I think check for in case they're actually being hosted elsewhere where they're a bit more concealed and more tricky to deal with. And if it, and then get it down to if it's just the phalaenopsis. Mm, you know, I've, you do have to be quite persistent with scale insects sometimes. You know, dipping. I used to do it with, um, you know, dipping cotton, pick, picking them off, and then you know, dipping a, a little cotton bud in methylated spirits or something, and doing them one by one. And it is more manageable on a phalaenopsis than on, say, a citrus tree or something like that. So it's just she, she's got to 
do a cost-benefit analysis of how much time she wants to spend on this plant or or just say, you know what, my time is also worth something. So I will just buy myself a new one day. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It can be a very, uh, feel like a sort of fourth road bridge situation uh, of, of keeping going with getting rid of these things. Although I think there's some, I find it quite a satisfying job removing pests like that, uh, mealybugs and scales. I, you know, I remember seeing a, coming across an acer trunk that was covered in scale insect. And I have this strange thing about anything that's flaky. It's a weird kind of little f- kind of obsession slash phobia. And I spent a happy half, half hour removing scale insects from this acer trunk uh, very happily. So I guess that's probably just me. I'm a b- bit strange. What can I say? <laughs> But um, yeah, I think that's the thing. Perseverance with these things is, and if it gets too much, then you know it's only a plant. It can, it can, uh, you can just open up room for something new. Um, right, we've got a question from Monica who wants to know if she should spritz her phalaenopsis with water. This is this is the disposed cure all for everything, isn't it? Misting with water seems to be the answer. Is it is it good for phalaenopsis though? Yeah, they do like it. They come from, you know, subtropics, tropical. They like a bit of humidity in the air. By all means, give them a bit of misting. It, ideally, you'd be using rainwater or essentially water that doesn't have loads of calcium in it or chlorine. But yes, they, they do like a little bit of humidity. And you can get away without misting them. But if you miss them, I think they will like that and perhaps reward you with more flowers than when you're a sort of you know slightly lazier gardener and you think well it's they're flowering that's enough I don't need to go for Chelsea standard blooms great and now a question that comes from Jane Perone that's me what why is it that when you sometimes see uh, orchids in the supermarket or in big box DIY places that they put moss into the containers because that seems really wrong. Do I need to remove that moss? Is it going to cause the plant a problem? Uh, no, it's not going to cause the plant a problem unless the moss was completely sodden and, you know, if you squeeze it and water runs out, that might be a bit too wet on the roots than they like because they don't they don't like to have their roots sitting in water. They're epiphytes. I think, I think they're... They're mossed because it, for aesthetic reasons. Yeah, I think it is a it's a style thing, and I, I just I find it a bit odd. But it's I guess as long as it's not doing any harm, or indeed, as you say, getting uh, getting the plants in a sort of boggy environment, then. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess the other problem with the one I sort of had this situation with also didn't have was in a pot with no drainage, so it wasn't an ideal combination. Uh, <laughs> but I have seen it in, in quite a few phalaenopsis. Yeah, exactly. Not a good plan. so much to Suzanne Masters for helping me out with those phalaenopsis questions. And now time for a little bit of a break from phalaenopsis to talk about some other stuff. I now have 64, yes, 64 patrons on Patreon. That's 64 people who are supporting the show on a monthly basis. Now, how fabulous is that? Let me tell you, it's super fabulous and it's really helping me to grow the show. I'm hoping to buy a fancy new microphone soon, which would be awesome. And I've got loads of excellent plans for upcoming episodes. So thank you to everyone who is supporting me on Patreon. If you're curious about how to do this, head on over to my show notes at janeperone.com where all will be revealed. And if you're still not sure, do drop me a line to ontheledgepodcast.gmail.com. I will be more than happy to help. If you'd like to give a one-off donation, that's still possible via co-fi.com. Again, details in the show notes. And thank you to my new patron this week, Marissa. For those of you who take a squiz at Twitter once in a while, have you checked out Houseplant Hour yet? This is an hour of Twitter chat solely about houseplants run by, well, run by me, actually. I've got an account called Houseplant Hour and you can just use the hashtag Houseplant Hour at any time. But the key time is every other Tuesday from 9 to 10 p.m. British summertime. 
The next chat's coming up on October the 2nd and every other Tuesday after that. So do join me if you can. Every week we try to have a theme, but you don't have to follow it. You can just ask whatever you want to ask share your fantastic houseplant photos, show off your latest specimens and your propagation stations and all that good stuff. So please do come and join me there because it gets a bit lonely otherwise. Also in other exciting news, it's hashtag National Indoor Plant Week. So why not drop a tweet or an Instagram post using that hashtag this week to show off how excited you are about houseplants and spread some of the indoor gardening love. And now it's time for question of the week, which comes from Lauren Barlow, who contacted me on Twitter, where I'm at Jane Perone. She wanted to know why the flowers on her anthurium have turned green from the light pink that they were when she bought them. Great question, Lauren. And this is a common problem for those buying anthuriums. That flower is actually made up of two things. The spathe, which is the kind of hood like bract that goes around the spadix, which is a spike covered in tiny, tiny clusters of the actual flowers. This often happens when you bring the plant home from the shop. The flowers will go green with age. When that plant is in the nursery under optimum conditions, being given lots and lots of light, exactly the right level of nutrients, probably controlled by all kinds of computer programs, that plant will look its absolute best. It may also be treated with hormones to make those flowers appear at the right time. When you bring it home, the plant's then subjected to your conditions in your home, which may not be quite as ideal as the nursery. The spathe will turn green and fade with age anyway, but if it happens really, really quickly, it's probably just a consequence of the fact that the plant is recognising that it's no longer in that nirvana of the nursery. There's not a lot you can do about it for the moment. When it comes to reblooming, you just need to try to get conditions as good as possible for that plant so that you do get the colourful bracts. This is one of these plants that needs to be moist at all times and don't let the temperature fall too low in the winter time. Colder air will turn the leaf edges a bit brown or yellow and this is one to be grouping with other plants or misting to increase the humidity around it. It does like humid air. One other thing to mention if you use a fertiliser that's high in nitrogen that will encourage leaf growth rather than the development of new flowers. So that's something to bear in mind if you're wanting to get your plant to regroom. Also, there are some anthuriums which are actually meant to be green. Obviously not this one of Lauren's, but there are some lovely green flowered anthuriums. There's one called Green Bicolor, which has a green spathe and a bright red spadix. And there's also some pure green anthuriums called Midori, both worth looking out for. I hope that helps Lauren and that your anthurium plant stays nice and healthy. If you've got a question for On The Ledge, drop me a line to onthelegepodcast at gmail.com. I'm planning a Q&A special in a few weeks time, so do drop your questions ready for that. From a plant ID to a problem with a peperomia, I'm here to help. And if I don't know the answer, then I know an expert who will. Every year, millions upon millions of Phalaenopsis orchids are shipped out from nurseries all over the world and finally end up in our homes. I wanted to see exactly how these plants are produced. So I headed to Double H Nurseries on the south coast of England, a nursery famed for their production of miniature roses, chrysanthemums and, of course, Phalaenopsis. As well as pumping out millions of the plants that you buy in places like Marks and Spencers and Sainsbury's, Double H is always looking for a new angle on orchids and the latest one is the scented Phalaenopsis. I start my chat with Dan Pass, account manager at Double H, by talking about their new range of flowers with that extra little bit of wafty smell. So I'm here with this orchid, this Phalaenopsis, which has a lovely sort of... uh, peachy coloured, almost cappuccino coloured petals and mottled leaves. And if we give it a sniff, that's nutmeg to me. That's a really lovely smell. It is, yeah, and um, quite, quite surprising as well. Really um, surprising, because we don't think of Phalaenopsis orchids having any smell whatsoever. No, ab- absolutely not. It was something that's been bred out over a number of years in favour for, for, for better, more vibrant colours, um, for better flower forms, for more flowers. And, um, yeah, we're in the process of, of bringing scent back. 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a long process, you know, um, to get um, a variety like this um, through to kind of consumers. Um, it's going to take around five years. So mm. um, you, you, you've kind of seen some of the, the varieties that we've we've got at the moment, things like Sunny Smell, Diffusion, and New Life. So they're the kind of the, the first ones um, that have come through. And these are kind of a, uh, an exclusive look at some of the, mm. the others. And these aren't even named yet, so these will have well, a... Well, that one, that one is definitely a hit. I yeah, love the like, smell of that. That's put, such a nice smell. <laughs> I yeah. love this, because I yeah. find I've not got a terribly strong sense of smell. Mm. And um, sometimes, sometimes, or sometimes I'll smell things that other people think are nice, and I'll just think that's horrible. I don't like the smell of that. Mm. But that is my kind of smell. That's yeah, almost yeah. edible. Ex uh, yeah, it's exactly. very, very nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's um, it, it, it's something that um, yeah, it's never going to be as strong as a lily or something like that. Some people no. we can we can hype it up and say, yeah, we've got scented orchids, and people mm. go, oh, yeah, it's quite, mm. you know, quite. When you look at the size of the flower compared to the kind of strength of the scent, I think it holds its own. Quite interesting is if um, is when you come down to the room in the morning, it greets you with that mm. kind of um, mm. unusual kind of nutmeggy smell um, mm. and there's some that are really sweet and lemony and flower yeah I think blossom. the one the one you sent me is a is a is a yellow one and that's kind of that's is kind of got a more um, I can't think what how to describe it but it's got a more lemony scent yeah I think. yeah yeah um, more citrusy is, yeah. type thing so, yeah. yeah so yeah we're always looking for kind of different um, different flower forms and even shapes you can see these have got a bit more a bit more um shape to them with regards mm. to angular and mm. this is kind of a bit curved you've got big lipped ones we've got small lipped ones all sorts of different colors and for me it's the kind of the 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 the, the missing link out of it mm. you know it's you've got a house plant you've got an orchid here that's um it's really easy to care for it flowers for for for, for, for months if you're interested in finding out a bit more about the actual process of producing orchids in a nursery setting, then I'm going to be sharing some of that in a blog post in the next few days. So do look out for that. But there was just one more thing from my chat with Dan Pass that I wanted to share with you. And that was something about dyed orchids. Love them? Hate them? Well, either way, you might be interested to know how they're actually created. Dyes injected into the flower stem via a little hole and that's then capped up with a bit of wax once the dye's gone in. The plant takes the dye up into its veins and that's what colours the flowers. And there were various different experiments going on on what Dan refers to as his bench of craziness. You might want to pull up my show notes while you listen to this so you can have a look at some of the plants we're talking about. Oh wow. <laughs> so this is so yeah the bench of craziness. So the bench can... of craziness. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, we're always trying to kind of come up with new and wonderful colours. Um, see here, this is where they drill in. Oh yeah. So they drill into this point here, mm. and then it's like a, a little waxy glue that goes over mm. to seal it back up. So what would be the, the are these would, what would be the natural colour of would these mostly be Yes, yeah, so this is kind of the natural colour here. Okay, it's, so it's, it's sort of purpley. Yeah, purpley pinky yeah. with the white centre and then mm. the white tends to pick up the colour a lot better. Mm. So mm. you create these kind of veins within it, um, kind of the ultraviolet kind of um, things in there as well. This one at the back's giving me a headache. <laughs> oh yeah, it's um, pretty uh, That's pretty, pretty lively. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I mean, but then again, you know, there will be people who really like that and really yeah, go yeah. for that right i can see in certain decors that would actually go really really well and that's actually in front of it there's this one which is a bit more subtle which is actually rather beautiful the way that colors come through there it's almost i can't quite describe it but it's almost kind of metallic somehow the way yeah, that's come through yeah, yeah absolutely yeah it's quite quite strange and no two are, are, are the same really so very often the colors can be get taken up in a slightly different way mm. um, yeah, we call that one the Incredible Hulk How much do I want an orchid called the Incredible Hulk? Quite a lot actually somebody needs to make that happen so there's a real skill to dyeing orchids and it's something that you might go for or might be completely out of your comfort zone when it comes to buying plants. But either way, you have to respect the fact that lots of experimentation is going on with the Phalaenopsis family and that can only be a good thing for horticulture. If you do have a dyed orchid, remember that when it reblooms, it will not flower the same colour as it did when you bought it. So a bright blue orchid is going to probably end up being pure white, but 
no doubt just as beautiful, and some might even argue even more beautiful. Well, I hope that's inspired you to think about Phalaenopsis in a new way today. And I'd highly recommend that you take a look at a few resources if you do want to learn more. First of all, Raffaele Di Lalo's new ebook, Moth Orchid Mastery, is available from Amazon. And you can find the link for that in my show notes. The two orchid books that I rely on are Growing Windowsill Orchids by Philip Seaton, which is published by Q, and Orchids, a Practical Handbook by Brian and Wilma Rittershausen, which is published by Hermes House. Again, links in the show notes. And do check out Double H's consumer-facing website, which is called loveorchids.co.uk, which has got information about the varieties they've bred, which have got AGMs, that's Royal Horticultural Society Award of Garden Merit, and details about their scented orchids and a lot more. Thanks so much to my guest this week, Rafaela Delalo of Ohio Tropics, orchid expert Suzanne Masters and Dan Pass of Double H. And thanks so much to Double H who gave me some Phalaenopsis orchids to try out when I visited. And you can see some pictures of those on my website. And thank you to Beth Otway of Pumpkin Beth for providing such a wonderful post about miniature Phalaenopsis. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, but if you've got any outstanding questions about Phalaenopsis, why not pop over to my Facebook group, Houseplant Fans of On The Ledge. Post your pictures of your moth orchids, ask a question, or just say why you absolutely hate them. I really don't mind as long as you get involved. I'll be back next Friday for more houseplant fun and games. I'll see you then. Bye! in this week's episode was Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops Hot Lips by Bill Brown and his Brownies An Instrument The Boy Called Happy Day Gakana by Samuel Corwin and Oh Mallory by Josh Woodward all licensed under Creative Commons See my website for details (laughs) 